This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, Our Advocate, and it comes from 1 John 2, 1 through 6. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talk Inc. could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts. So won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone. Or you can mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Last, you can get through the WMER app, which is available right off our website, which is WMERWorldwide.com. Your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS-approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense of providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, if you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class, with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com. Or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Amazon or Google or Spotify or iTunes. We're there too. Just search for WMER, Radio Bible Class, with no spaces between Radio Bible Class. So today we start in chapter 2 with this short book of 1 John. We've already covered two lessons that covered the first chapter. The first lesson was about the beginning. The book starts off talking about the beginning. It talks about what they had seen, what they had heard, how they had touched Jesus, and how they could testify to all his works. That it was not like the people that were going around into the churches now as disciples have slowly been martyred off. And John's one of the last ones left. He's about to go to the island of Patmos. But here he he begins off saying that he heard Jesus, that they saw Jesus, they were able to touch Jesus, and they could testify based on everything that they saw. And then we finished up with him talking about the life and how the life was manifested to us so that we could have fellowship with the Father. And actually, we're going to get back into that today because fellowship is where we took off last week where we started talking about walking in the light. And that when we walk in the light, that that light has no darkness. Light is pure light. Now, we see darkness because of the light, but there is no darkness in the light. And with that thought in mind that John's trying to teach us is that that light shines on us and it shows us our darkness. It shows us the areas in which we need to prune away. And through that, we have fellowship. We have fellowship in this light. And through this light where our path is also illuminated, It shows us the way that we should go and we take his word because his word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And taking his word, put in our heart, living by it, walking it out, we walk in the light and we have fellowship with the Father. Now, he did talk about sin a pretty good bit. 
And he talked about that anyone that says they don't sin is lying to themselves. And so today he's going to pick back up and he's really going to summarize what he said in the first two verses of verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. If it was Paul, he would say, therefore, but this is John. John doesn't use that same language, but we're going to see that. So with that said, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll be reading out of the ESV. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we're going to stop right there, and we're going to immediately just break this first verse apart. We're only doing six, but we're going to really wordsmith these six verses and dive deep into them. So the first thing we see is that his love for his fellow Christians. He says, my little children, he's showing you are disciples of the disciples. And I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Now, he, if you look at that tense right there in the words that you may not sin, it really is a one-time thing. But what he's saying is that you're going to sin, and we're going to see that in the second half of this verse. Hopefully, it is only a one-time sin. It is not a habitual sin. And we talked about that last time. We talked about how we cannot live in habitual sin if the light is in us. If we do willingly and openly live in sin, then the light's not in us because there is no darkness in light. So he starts off saying that the purpose of writing you is so that you will not sin. And again, like I said, it's to understand that he's not saying that we won't live a sinless life because we will sin. That's, our, that's in our flesh nature. But he's talking about occasional sin that happens, a sin that is a one-time sin. It's talking about a specific point or place in time. It's not an ongoing action. Turn with me to Hebrews 9.27, and let's look at what it says. Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this is the judgment. Again, I want you to look at the verb there. If you go look at that in the Greek, to die is a single-time tense. The tense of it is a single happening. Rather than speaking about an ongoing action, like a habitual sin, it is talking about a one-time action. This is the same type of tense and verb that it uses when he talks about that if we do sin. So we see in the purpose that John is writing to help us avoid those individual acts of sin, which seem to happen to all Christians. He wants us to avoid them, even the smallest of things that would impact our fellowship with God because of that sin and also would impact our relationship with one another. Remember, we talked about the vertical fellowship that we have with God, but we also have a horizontal fellowship with fellow uh, Christians. So if you look at the tense and you understand what I'm trying to say, that he's not teaching, he's not espousing a doctrine of sinless perfection, but he's given us instructional insight how to walk in the light, even though we will have areas that we will sin occasionally. Now look back at verse 1 with me again, and look at the second half of the verse, the second part of it. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so what John realizes here is that Christians are going to fall on times when they will stumble and fall, and they'll step back into sin. 
And when we do, we have an advocate that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's our advocate for the Father. And he's reminding us, really, of verse 9 in chapter 1, where he says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And so when we do sin, we have that advocate. Now, the Greek word for advocate was a legal term, and we understand this. It's used in a court of law. We have an advocate that speaks in our defense, just like if we had a defense attorney that was in a courtroom with us, they would speak on our behalf. Jesus is our advocate that's speaking on our defense if we are walking in the light. If we've accepted him and his blood is covering us, then he is our advocate to the Father who did not sin. Hebrews 7.25 really says this too. Look at what it says. Consequently, he is able to save the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so it tells us that Jesus is our helper. He's our mediator. Jesus is the one making intercession for us. But there's something even more special about this. In a courtroom today, what he's mediating for would be about my life. And what we're seeing here is that the defense before the judge is not based on our life or our action, but it's based on Jesus's life. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus defends those who confess their guilt. He does not defend those who maintain an innocence. So in a court system today, the client is almost always told to plead not guilty. And then their legal defense is around showing that that person on trial did not commit the crime or there's not enough evidence to convict them. There's a reasonable doubt. But our defense works completely different. If we try to plead not guilty to the crimes, we are found guilty and we're going to be cast into eternal punishment. However, if we confess our sins and admit that we're guilty of the charges, we have Jesus as our advocate who pleads for mercy on our behalf on the basis of his own perfect life. Jesus is the righteous one, not us. In this defense, Jesus has the ability to help and the only one who could help. See, we need a righteous intercessor. We need that sin covered in blood, a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus was that. Again, Paul wrote to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5 and says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, a man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. When we sin, and we do sin, God has provided a way for us to reconcile that fellowship. It is through Jesus Christ who is the propitiation of our sin. And we see that. Look at verse 2 with me. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For my note takers, there's two things in this verse we should see. First, it speaks about the source of God's forgiveness, and that is Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. And then the second thing we're going to see is that the scope of God's forgiveness is for all. Now, this word propitiation, which is hard for me to say, means an appeasement or a satisfaction. It means the sacrifice of Jesus that was made on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice. As long as time has existed and man has been on this earth, 
there have been rituals where a sacrifice was made to appease the gods, whether it was the one true living God or the God of the, of the sky or the water or whatever. But the one true God sent his son to die on the cross, and Jesus' sacrifice made the satisfaction. It met the demand of God's justice. Now, we're probably more familiar with the word atonement. Basically, it means the same thing. Sin cannot go unpunished, and on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins. He was the atonement for our sins. And if we, by faith, place our trust in what Jesus did on the cross, he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. We studied that last week. And if you left last week wondering, am I really saved? This should give you assurance in your salvation. John is writing to assure us that we have an advocate with the Father, that is Jesus, and because Jesus was perfect and without sin, he was in an acceptable sacrifice. He satisfied God's demands. His sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price. He was the atonement that we needed for our sins. And here's the interesting part, at least it was for me as I was studying and preparing for this lesson, is the second thing I told you, the scope of this is not only did Jesus die for my sins and your sins, but he died for the sins of the whole world. He died for sins that will never admit that they need his help. He carried them anyway and took them to the cross just in case they do choose that. Now, there is a group that understands what I'm trying to get across to you, and they're called Universalist. And they believe in this thing called universalism. And they take this one verse and they say, well, if Christ died for the sins of the whole world, that means everyone will eventually be saved. Or otherwise, would Christ, why would he do this? But that is not consistent with Scripture. That is not what the Bible teaches us. I'll show you that. Turn with me to John 3, 17 and 18. Again, John 3, 17 and 18 for you note takers. For God did not send the Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe him has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So this is a false doctrine, this universalism, because it fails to meet the test of Scripture. Not everyone will be saved. The Bible teaches that throughout Scripture we have this testimony that salvation comes only to those who repent of their sins and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, then there's the other folks that say, well, Jesus really didn't die for the whole world, I mean, even though that's what the Bible says. What it really means is he died for those that were predestined to be saved, those that who believe what is called limited atonement. But this passage tells us that the blood of Christ was sufficient to pay the price for the sins of the whole world. When you go look at that Greek word there that translates whole, serves as an adjective. It speaks to the scope. It speaks to the breadth of what the Lord's work did. They get caught up in the idea that why would Jesus take on anything that he didn't have to when he went to the cross? Because God's all-knowing. He knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, even though he gives us free will. And so what the Bible is teaching us right here is that God sent his son who died on the cross for the whole world, that anyone who believes in him, that means anybody, God knows who's going to make that decision. 
But he made a way that even though we have free will and he knows what our decision is going to be, that they still had an opportunity. They weren't, we're not robots. We're not just somebody that might as well be puppets. But again, you can see both extremes of this. This does not mean everyone will be saved. It simply means that the blood of Jesus Christ made it possible for anyone that wants to be saved, that uses free will to choose Jesus Christ, will be saved. And that means anyone in the whole world, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved, is what the Bible says. It's true that God draws us to himself through his spirit, by his grace, that we cannot be saved unless we're drawn unto him. And that's why the Bible tells us that we need to go out and give the word. We need to preach the gospel. We need to extend God's invitation to all so that those people will have a choice and they'll have a chance to accept his gift of eternal life. Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as we preach the gospel, the spirit of God draws people to himself. Unfortunately, many people reject that drawing. And as I look at the clock, I'm already getting out of time, so I got to move on. So let me summarize this. We now know that we have an advocate with the Father who has paid the sacrificial price, paid the atonement. He met the requirements. And all we need is to know him. And his name is Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 3 and 4 with me because I need to move on. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The light is not in him. There is darkness in him. If we go back and plug in what we learned last week. But whoever keeps his word, verse 5 In him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So again, this verse, verse 3, sometimes is taken out of context. It says, by this we are knowing that we have come to know him. And how do we know that? It is by works. It is by living out his commandments. And if you go look at that word know in the Greek, it is gnosko, which means through a personal experience. So if you take that into consideration and read this verse by that context, then what it's saying by this, we are knowing that we have completed the action. We have come to know him. This speaks of the certainty and the finality of our salvation experience. It doesn't mean that we are saved as we keep his commandments. We've been saved, and through that, the works follow our salvation. Ephesians 2.8 teaches the same thing. It says, For by grace we have been saved through what? Faith. That is not from your own doing, but it is a gift from God. Not a result of works, so that anyone may boast, but we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So again, he's saying after we're saved through faith, we, are, we then do the good works that Christ has created us for, which he predestined beforehand that we should walk in them. So with that said, then we need to understand what John is really trying to teach the Christians there and teach us, that we have something that shows or demonstrates for us the reality if we have really come to know him. And what is it? It is faithfulness. It is obedience. We need to keep his commandments. 
We need to observe. We need to obey. And so like I told you last week, if we say we know him and we don't keep his commandments, then we're liars. The truth's not in us. We don't have the light in us because there's darkness. Well, you may be going, Tim, hold on. You told us that we're all going to sin and we are going to occasionally sin. That is the flesh nature. We're not perfect. There was only one perfect person and he walked here on earth and he died for our sins. And he's our atonement. But what this is really saying is that we will strive to walk in the light. We will keep his commandments, even though we may slip and fall. Jesus said, it is clear by their fruits that you shall know them. Simply claiming to be a Christian doesn't cut it. The measure of our faithfulness is obedience. If we are truly part of the faithful, if we're truly part of the family of Christ, if we're truly in fellowship with God, then it will be evidence in the life we live, and we will walk in obedience with Christ. I mean, the beauty of this short book, even as rich as it is, is the simplicity of it. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to get what John is saying to us. It's really simple. If you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments. If you say you love him and you don't keep his commandments, then you're a liar and the truth's not in you. Well, look at verse 5 and 6 real quick with me. In verse 5 and 6, then John takes us a little further and he talks about spiritual maturity. He's really saying there'll always be those who pretend to be grown up in Christ and they're not. Those who are more mature... And what are the signs of the evidence of our maturity and our walk with God? Well, our maturity is manifested in our obedience. In John 14, 15, he recorded Jesus saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so the measurement of our maturity is how well we obey God's will. It means obedience to his commandments. It means walking in his ways. The better we walk in his way, the more mature we are. And how do we get that maturity? We get that maturity by taking his word and hiding it in our heart and then living it out. Let me give you an illustration of this. Again, we all know that if we go out to the beach and we lay out on the, under the sun that we will get sunburn. And so man has created suntan lotion that has a blocker on it that will let us lay out there and get tan without burning. But just because I know that doesn't mean that I'm obedient. My obedience is when I take the sunblock and I apply it to my body. And the more that I do that, each and every time, less likely I am to be burned if I stay within the windows that, that man has told us about sunblock. But when we get outside the realm, either I don't put it on or I stay out too long, guess what happens? I get burned. And the same thing is with our walk with Christ. The times that we get outside his will, we get burned. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will walk in my ways. So the question for you is, how do you love Jesus and what does love Jesus mean to you? I mean, do you love him simply because he died to save us from our sins? Do you love him simply because he's God? Do you love him because he first loved you and gave himself for you even before you loved him? Or do you love him for who he is and because of what he's done? Now, the Greek had many words for love. 
And the ultimate word was agape, which means a selfless. Uh, It speaks to accepting others-oriented kind of love. And this love that Jesus is talking about, this agape love, is a love that is no longer about living for ourselves, but we die to ourselves daily. We abandon ourselves and we live for him. We take up his cross and we walk with him and for him alone. We make him truly Lord of our life. Some people have a shoebox, Jesus. And what that means is they put Jesus in a shoebox and they put him up on the shelf or they put him in the closet And they leave him there and they run their life. But when they get in trouble, when they need Jesus, they go get the shoebox out and they get Jesus out and they say, Jesus, I need you to fix this. And that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, I want you to die to yourself daily. I want you to take up my cross and I want you to live for me and for me alone. I want you to walk in my ways. And this is a mindset that most of the church has lost. How can we say we love Jesus and live for ourselves? How can we say that we love him and we're not allowing him to live through us? How can we claim to love him with our lips if we live our life that is not of his commandments? Our actions show that we don't love him even though our lips say we do. And so John finishes up saying that if we really know him, the maturity sign will be that he's perfected his love in us. I think about people that I've run into since I graduated high school with them and I meet them and we talk and we catch up, we sync up our lives and I'm like, that's not the same person that I used to know. Some for the better, some for the worse. And so that's what he's talking about there, that our life has become perfected in Jesus. Our life has become perfected in the way we are to walk in his commandments. And that's what he's speaking about in verse 6. I'm out of time, so let me close with this final thought. This is how we know him, that the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. That is to say, we will live the way he lived. We will bear the mark of Christ in our life to the degree that others will see Christ in us, that we abide in him. We've exchanged our life for his life. And when we do that, our lives look similar to his life. Do you want to be like Jesus today? You know, a lot of people claim to want this, but few really try to do this. Do you want to love the way he loved? Do you want to talk the way he talked? Do you want to walk the way he walked? Do you want to live the way he lived? Then give your life to him. Give like he gave. The question you have to answer today Do you want to live like Jesus? Sadly, too many folks calling them Christians don't want the obedience that it requires here on earth. They just want the glory of heaven. They want the benefit of what Jesus did without the burden of living it out. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Lord, this is a very challenging message. Lord, there are a lot of proclaiming Christians out there that say that they are yours, but they don't walk in the way that you walked. They aren't striving to do your will. They want the benefit of the cross, but they don't want the obedience that comes with that benefit. Lord, maybe there's one that hears my voice right now that's in this very spot. Lord, I pray today, Lord, that they would ask for forgiveness. They would turn. Lord, that your Holy Spirit will convict them. And Lord, that they will lay it at your feet. 
Lord, that they'll renew those vows. Lord, that they'll renew their belief in you and they will die to themselves daily. Lord, that they will say, Holy Spirit, help me each and every morning as I get up. They'll start their day by saying, I want to have breakfast with you, dear Jesus. I want you to help me be more like you. Lord, they'll get into your word. They'll hide it in their heart and they'll start living it out. Lord, I pray for the one that doesn't know you at all. Lord, I pray right now that today would be the day. Lord, that your Holy Spirit is convicting them and they'll respond. That they'll confess with their mouth that they need a Savior. They understand that We've all sinned and fallen short. And they know that now that they need that Savior, and Lord, they say, Lord, come into my life. I'll make you Lord of my life. Lord, they'll believe on your finished work, and they'll make you Lord. And they'll chase after you following your commandments. Lord, we thank you for this ministry. Lord, we thank you for those that follow this ministry. And Lord, we bless each and every one that's listening to this right now and the gifts that they give towards this ministry. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.